Well, my heart is full this morning. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for grace. Uh, what a difference grace makes. I pray now that you'd help us as we open your word. You'd speak to us from your word. And help us to adore Christ even more than we already do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take our Bibles to Revelation chapter 5 this morning. Our text this morning will be the whole chapter of Revelation 5. It's not a very long chapter, uh, so I think we're going to be fine. It's a glorious chapter. It's a world-changing chapter. In this chapter, the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified to the highest degree possible. And so from this morning, from Revelation chapter 5, let us consider Jesus the worthy one. Revelation 5 verse 1 and I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within, within and on the backside, sealed with the seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld... And I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the, numbers, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the, Lamb, unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen, and the four and twenty, twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord add, add the blessing to the reading of his word and now the preaching of his word. You know, the Bible is not a series of random short stories nor is it a series of coincidental happenings. But the Bible records the story of man from God's vantage point. In the book of Genesis, we find that God plants man in a garden. Uh, it was paradise. It was, per it was perfect. It was the kingdom of God upon this earth. There was peace, righteousness, and joy. But on that fateful day when Adam took of the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil... It changed, it unalterably changed the future of mankind. The consequences of that one act were absolutely devastating 
to our future. As a result of that act, sin, sickness, sorrow, pain, all difficulty and really all bad things in this life were introduced as a result of that one transgression. But also as a result of Adam's transgression on that day, the kingdom of God was removed from this earth. And in, in the stead of the kingdom of God, Satan took the throne of this world. We find in scripture that Satan is referred to as the God of this world. He is referred to as a ruler, as the ruler of the darkness of this world. And boy, can we feel the effects of his reign in this world. Satan, in his presiding over this world, has caused nothing but even more destruction, even more damage, even more death, even more sickness and death in this, in this life. And though Satan is the temporary god of this world, he does not care about the citizens of this world. He is not a benevolent dictator but he hates the people in this world. He seeks to destroy people's lives. He seeks to wreck, uh, wreck havoc in their lives, ruin marriages, ruin families, ruin lives. And most of all, he, he desires the eternal destruction and damnation of all those that live in the world. And what we need as humanity is for someone to come along and to destroy Satan. We need a king to rise up and decimate the kingdom of Satan. And not only to destroy Satan and his kingdom, but to restore to us what we lost back in the Garden of Eden. We don't just need the current kingdom destroyed and decimated, but we need the kingdom of God back in this world. And what the first book of the Bible shows us is, is how we lost the kingdom of God in this earth. But what the last book of the Bible shows us is that we get it back. That the kingdom of God ultimately is restored to us and the kingdom of this, uh, of this world, the kingdom of Satan, his minions are destroyed and damned forever. The story of the end of the world is a fascinating one. It is a marvelous one as told in the book of Revelation. But it's not just a story, it's reality. It will most certainly come to pass. But as we will see from this chapter, from Revelation chapter 5 this morning, that all of that hangs in the balance in this particular chapter. It is right here in chapter number 5 where the fate of the future is sealed, where the fate of Satan is determined, and that the kingdom of, uh, the kingdom of God will be reestablished upon the earth. Right here is where all of that is determined or finalized. Now chapter 5 is really a continuation from chapter 4, really un uninterrupted. In chapter number 4, John, the author of the book of Revelation, is taken up, as it were, into the throne room of God. And in chapter 4, as John describes what he sees, it is surreal. It is almost incredible. It's almost unreal what he sees. The dazzling display, the throne of God, God himself and those that are surrounding his throne. He sees particularly 24 elders that are surrounding the, third, uh, the, the throne. I, I personally believe that the 24 elders represent the church. They represent us surrounding the throne of God that day. There are also, along with the 24 elders, four majestic, incredible beasts surrounding the throne. And they are chanting perpetually to the holiness of God, the holy character of God. When you turn the chapter to chapter 5 from chapter 4, John is still in the throne room and nothing has really changed. But the focus in chapter 5 shifts from the God on the throne to something that is in the hand of, of God on the throne. 
as, we, as we're going to see from the rest of the chapter, that the focus of this chapter is really not, on, not in what is in God's hand, but rather on the worthy one, the one worthy to take the book and open it. But when we come to chapter number 5, we see that the focus is immediately on the book that is in the hand of God. So as we look at the chapter, I want us to break it down into three parts. First, we see the necessity of one to, to open the book. And then secondly, we'll notice the, the identification of the one worthy to open the book. And then finally, in, in closing, we'll notice the celebration of the one worthy to open the book. First of all, I want you to see the necessity of one worthy to open the book. We see this in verse number one as we see the, the focus of the the book. In verse number one, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now, as we see, as we as we begin to see the events unfold, it becomes clear to us that whatever this book is, whatever is in this book is really, really important. So we see in the next few verses that when no one is immediately identified as being as being worthy to take the book, it is, a, it is a worthy occasion for total and utter despair. Later on in the book, when there is one, or later on in the chapter, when the one that is worthy is identified and stands and steps forward to take the book, we see that this is a cause for such celebration. The end of the chapter is just a, a jubilant exaltation and celebration of the one worthy to open the book. So the book is extremely important. Whatever is in this book is of utmost importance. And it begs the question, what is in this book? What is this book all about? And there's been much debate among scholars and commentators about what was in the book in Revelation chapter 5. I think it's crystal clear what was in the book because when you come to chapter number 6, we see in verse number 1, And I saw when the Lamb, we're going to see him in just a minute, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Well, where have we heard seals before? Well, we saw it in chapter 5, verse 1. This book is sealed with seven seals. And in fact, in chapter number 6, uh, the Lord, or the, the, the worthy one that stands and steps forward to take the book, opened six of the seals. Later on, we're going to see him open the seventh seal, I think in chapter number Chapter number 8. So as the Lord, as the worthy one begins to open the book and begins to, un, uh, begins to loosen the seals, what we find in this book is that it is the plan of God for the end of the world. As he opens the seventh seal, the judgment of God begins to be poured out upon the earth. So what we need to understand about this book is that it is the plan of God for the end of the world. In this book is the plan for God to judge all the sinners that have not trusted in Jesus Christ. In this book is the plan to destroy the kingdom of Satan forever and ever. In this book is the plan to reestablish the kingdom of God upon this earth. What we find in this book is that God has already written the last page of the history book. He is not sitting up in heaven biting his fingernails waiting to see who comes ahead. But in fact, he has already written the history books. He's not waiting for global warming to interrupt his plan. He already knows how, how it all will end. But it still leaves the question. There's still a little bit of hesitation there. Because it still leaves the question, why is this book such a big deal? 
If it is merely a recording of what will transpire at the end of the world, if it is merely the plan of God on paper for the end of the world, it, it, it would seem that the significance is overstated in chapter number 5. It doesn't seem like that is cause for such despair if someone is not able to open the book. It doesn't seem that that's a cause for such celebration of one being able to open the book. So it leaves the question, why is this such a big deal? And to answer that, that question, we have to understand that in Roman times, in the Roman times of this day, that a book like this, really a scroll, was very common. It was used, uh, uh, used a lot in contractual terms to spell out contracts, whether it was a marriage agreement, a land purchase, etc., a title deed, all kinds of contracts were spelled out in scrolls like this, in books like this, and then they were rolled together and they were sealed on the edges with a soft wax seal. And it was sealed for the specific purpose that no unauthorized person could open the contents of the book. Nobody that was not privy to the details inside could open it and discover the contents. Only one authorized to open the scroll, to open the book, could do so. So when we consider again the book in Revelation chapter 5, it's not just a book that tells the story of the end of the world, but rather this book is the authorization to bring to pass the end of the world. If no one is able to open the book, then no one can bring to pass the destruction of Satan's kingdom. If no one is able to open the book, then no one can establish God's kingdom upon the earth again. So do you see the significance of the book? We really cannot go on. The rest of the chapter does not make sense if we do not see the significance of the book here in Revelation chapter 5. Do you see the significance of the book? Do you see the importance of this book? If no one steps forward to open this book, to take this book then history will march on perpetually under the, under the terrorizing reign of Satan. But if a worthy one steps forward to take the book, then the deceiver will be destroyed and God will reign and rule upon this earth once again. And I want you to look with me at the first few verses, how it again makes this very clear, the significance, the importance, the necessity of this book. In verse number 2, we see a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. The idea here is to get everyone's attention. The angel's voice will echo, excuse me, through every hall, in every corner of, the, of, of all parts of the universe, in heaven and in the universe. And the question which this angel will ask is of utmost importance. It demands everyone's attention on heaven and on earth. And notice the question of the angel at the end of verse number 2. Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And in verse number 3, we see that as the voice of this echo echoes through the halls of heaven, that there is a deafening silence. I can imagine that the heaven repeats the question, Is anyone worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? The search is exhaustive. Is anyone worthy? We need someone worthy to stand and step forward to take the book. And every moment that passes is just a, a, just a, a, a little bit more tension rising, anxiety building as no one steps to the plate. No one steps, stands and steps forward to the throne to take the book. 
In verse number 4, we see John's commentary on the situation, and I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Uh, the, the tension has reached a boil point, boiling point in verse number 4, so much so that John has reached a point of desperation. John understands the significance of this book. He understands the importance of finding one that is worthy to take and to open the book. And he's beginning to lose hope. Is anyone worthy to take the book? Is there anyone worthy to destroy the kingdom of Satan and establish the kingdom of God upon the earth? And as he sees the apparent, the apparent uh, uh, no, no one standing and stepping forward, it causes John to break down into utter despair. Do you see how significant this is? Do you see how necessary it is that one who is worthy stand and step forward to take the book? So we see the necessity, the importance of finding one worthy. But now as we shift to the end of the chapter, we see the identification of the one who is worthy to take the book. And I want you to see in verse number 5, the scene begins to shift. We're now no longer focused on the book, but we are focused on the one who stands and steps forward to take the book. In verse number 5, one of the elders notices John weeping. And the elder tells John to stop weeping. Because in the midst of John's weeping, he has missed the most important detail in this whole scene. That there has been one to stand and step forward. And we see in verse number 5 that the elder... The elder identifies the one who is worthy to stand and step forward. See in verse number 5, One of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So we see the identification. There are two primary identification characteristics that are given to the worthy one in verse number 5. We see first of all that this worthy one is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion. I don't think we can truly comprehend how important and how significant that would have been to John in this day. John at this point is exiled to the Isle of Patmos because of his faith in Jesus Christ. John at this point has seen just about every other disciple killed for their faith in Christ. He has watched Christians be hunted be mocked, participate, be forced to participate in the cruel games of the Romans. He has watched Christians be decimated on, on the left and the right at the hand of the most powerful kingdom in, in the world. And I can imagine that as he hears the description of a lion, how refreshing that must have been. Because what John needed was a conquering king. What he needed was a lion. Someone to step, step into his world and to conquer the enemy, to conquer the foe. So we see that the worthy one is a conquering one. He's a lion. He's an apex predator. There are no natural predators to the lion. The lion is the king of the jungle. And so the one that is identified is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Now the description fully is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So the person qualified to take the book and to open thereof is from the tribe of Judah. And the identification of this worthy one really harkens back to what we find in Genesis chapter 49. 
In Genesis 49, Jacob the patriarch is about to die. And before he dies, he pronounces prophecies to all of his sons about each of his sons. And when he comes to Judah, there are really four crucial prophecies that are given in regards to Judah, his son. And all four of them really are fulfilled ultimately in the person of the Messiah. But there's one that is particularly relevant to our passage today. And I'll read it for you in Genesis 49 and verse 9. Jacob says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The analogy here of Judah is to, a, is to the kingly beast of the field. It is to a lion's whelp, a lion, a lion's cub. As Jacob goes on, he describes Judah as being one who will have his hands on the neck of his enemies. That is to speak of a position of domination. He is, he is the conquering Judah. So when the elder identifies the worthy one as the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is hearkening back to Genesis 49 where Jacob prophesies of the Messiah, the Messiah who will be the conquering king. That is who this worthy one is. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the conquering king from the tribe of Judah. As, as, as the elder goes on here in Revelation chapter 5 to describe this worthy one, we see that he not only says he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but even more specifically, he is the root of David. So the worthy one is not only from the tribe of Judah, but he's even more specifically from the royal line of David. <clears throat> and again, just like in the previous title given to the worthy one, this harkens back to a prophecy that is found in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 11, very specifically in verse number 1, we read, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So this identifies the root, the root of David, as the Messiah. Now, as Isaiah goes on in Isaiah chapter 11, he begins to describe the reign of the root of David. And I'll just give you some of, some of what follows Isaiah verse 11, uh, chapter 11 verse 1. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor. With the breath of his lips he shall, slay, shall he slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as, water, as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. In Jacob's prophecy of the lion of the tribe of Judah, he speaks to a coming conquering king, one who will have his hands on the neck of his enemies. In Isaiah's prophecy, the description is much, much different. Yes, he is the conquering king, but he is also the king of peace. He is the one who establishes a reign of peace. And my friends, is this not who we need in our world today? We need one to come into our world and to destroy our enemy, to destroy his enemy, Satan. But I don't know if you know this, but most of the victorious and conquering kings that have come into the world also have a reign of terror to go along with it. But this man is different. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the conquering king, but he is the root of David. 
He establishes a reign, a kingdom of peace, righteousness, and joy upon the earth. Now I know that just about everybody here knows who we're talking about. The worthy one. This is the Messiah. is Jesus Christ. And in case you don't believe me, Jesus himself identifies himself as the root of David. In Revelation chapter 22, this is what Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the, you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. So it is none other than Jesus, Jesus Christ, who stands and steps forward to take the book. He is the worthy one. He is the Messiah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the conquering king. And he is the root of David, the one who will establish a reign of peace and righteousness on this earth. But as we see in verse number 5, there's an important detail that I don't want us to miss this morning. The elder says to John, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. He hath prevailed to open the book, there, to open the, take the book and open, loosen the seals thereof. See, Jesus Christ, and I don't want to get into this too much, but I believe that the book was agreed to in eternity past. And between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the, the plan of redemption was put into place, was sealed in this book by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that, so that Jesus Christ in this chapter is the only one who can step, step forward and stand to take the book. And by that I mean he is the only one who is inherently qualified to take the book. He's the only one that was in eternity past to agree to the details of this contract. But it's not just that he is inherently the possessor of, of the kingdom of God, that he is inherently the one that is worthy to take the book, but he has he is earned the right to take the book thereof. He has prevailed to open the book, to, to be worthy to open the book. So what we find is that when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he primarily came to die for our sins. That's why he came. He came to die for the penalty of our sins, and we thank the Lord that he did that. But when he came to die, he did not only come to die for the penalty of our sins. The Lord Jesus also came and pronounced war against the, against the devil. In John chapter 12, this is what Jesus himself says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Jesus is declaring in John chapter 12 that he is at war with Satan, that he has come to destroy Satan. And what we find from Scripture, it's subtly hinted at here and there throughout the New Testament, is that in order to prevail, in order to defeat Satan, then he must be a man. That is an important qualification. In Hebrews chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's very clear that the one who is worthy to prevail over Satan must be a man. Just as a man got us into this mess, so a man must get us out of this mess. Hebrews 2.14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He, that is Jesus, also Himself likewise took part of the same, that is flesh and blood, that through death He might destroy Him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And again there, 
the death of Jesus Christ is referenced as, a, as an act of war against Satan. And in fact, his death is the nail in the coffin of, of Satan. And we see this very clearly in Colossians. In Colossians 2.15, I love this verse, says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. I just love that. Ephesians speak to the fact that he led captivity captive. In my imagination, imagination, I see Jesus in the grave as he is marching around hell during those three days in the grave. And I see him showing, showing Satan and all the demons everything that they have just lost. Just as Satan showed him the kingdoms of yeah. this earth, yeah. so Jesus turns yeah. around and shows him the kingdoms of the earth and says, this is what you have just lost. Yeah. This is what Jesus has Amen. won when he conquered Satan yeah. in the grave. So we see the identification of the worthy one. In verse number 5, it is the elder that identifies the worthy one. In verse number 6, John lifts up his eyes. He puts his eyes upon the worthy one, and he himself adds a description to the worthy one. In verse number 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four, uh, four beasts, and in the midst of the elder stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are, are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now I would imagine that as John lifted his eyes, he anticipated a lion, because that's what the elder described, was a lion. I think he anticipated a conquering king. But as he lifted his eyes, he saw something that looked familiar, because John was there when Jesus was crucified on the cross. So John knew precisely where the, nails, where the nails had penetrated the feet and the hands of the Lord Jesus. John had seen with his own eyes the thorns that was, that was crushed into, the, into the, the crown of Jesus' head. John saw with his own eyes the spear that was thrust into the side of Jesus. And as he lifts his eyes, he's able to identify personally who this man is. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David, but to John, he's the lamb slain. Amen. But notice the posture of the lamb in verse number 6. A lamb as it had been slain, but, but, he stood. He stood. He had been slain, but he is not slain. This is a lamb that is standing. He is standing, he is ready to conquer he is ready to take vengeance on his enemies. He is ready to establish the kingdom of God upon the earth. And he is described in verse number 6 as having seven horns, seven eyes, a very mysterious description of a lamb, a lamb that had been slain. It's the, spirits, the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. We find that horns testify to the power of God, the power of Christ. That's what horns are used in the animal world. They're, they're used to combat one another. The number seven speaks to perfection. So what is stated by having seven horns is that this lamb has all power. Yep. <laughs> He's not just a little lamb, right. but he has all power. Man, right. He is able to execute vengeance upon his enemies. Man, right. But then in having seven eyes, not only the number of perfection, but the eyes speak to the knowledge of this lamb. He has not only the power to overcome his enemies, but he has the wisdom to overcome yeah. his enemies. Right. He, knows, he knows all things. 
This is, this, is, this is a lamb that is absolutely sure to win victory over his enemies. So we see the identification of the worthy one, and then finally, we won't spend much time on it, but we see the celebration of the worthy one. In verse number 7, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. The scene really climaxes here in verse number 7 as the Lord Jesus stands and steps to the right hand of the Father to take the book and to begin to open the seals. And as it is, it is as if he has passed the test in doing so. It is as if when he takes the book out of the Father's hand that he is pronounced by the Father as being the worthy one. And in case you're not in agreement with my interpretation of the text, we find multiple instances in the Old Testament that agree with this interpretation. Daniel, as one example, uh, really sees a vision that is very, very much like what we see in Revelation chapter 5. Daniel says in chapter 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came, came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father. And they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. What, what Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7 is exactly what we see in Revelation chapter 5. It is the Lord Jesus stepping to the throne of God and receiving his inheritance. He is inherently the one qualified to receive the book, but he has also earned the right to receive the book as well. Psalms 2 speaks of the same, same thing, of the Father giving this earth, giving the kingdom to his Son. And what I want you to see, that as the Son takes the book, that after he has received the book of the Father, the fate of the future is sealed. And everybody in attendance recognizes that. Because as soon as he receives the book, they burst out into an exclamation of joy and praise and glory. See, the people in attendance that day, they knew the stakes of this. They knew that the fate of the future rested on if there was a worthy one to step, step forward. And what you have to understand is that it is not merely Christ's future that is at stake, but it is the future of the citizens of his kingdom that are at stake as well. And we see this especially from the worship of the, the 4 and 20 elders, the church as it were. In verses 9 and 10, they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. See, when Jesus conquers his enemy, he conquers our enemy as well. And we're not able to conquer our enemy. We have no competency or capability of overcoming our foe, the devil. So when Jesus puts the, death, puts the final nail in the coffin of Satan, he does not only conquer his foe, but he conquers our foe. When he defeats his enemy, enemies, he defeats our enemy. And when he establishes his kingdom upon the earth, it is almost unbelievable what, what the saints say, that we will reign with him, that we share in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when the worthy one steps, stands and steps to the throne to take 
the, to take the book, he stands in representation of all saints, past, present, and future. The Lord Jesus fights our battles. He wins our wars. He relieves our fears. And what we see as the chapter ends, and this is how we'll conclude this morning, is that if he is worthy to open the book, to bring about the end of all things, to reestablish the kingdom of God upon this earth, to defeat our great enemy, then he is worthy of our endless praise. Our endless praise. That's what we see from the last part of this book. They recognize what he has just done for them. And in what he has done for them, they turn around and say, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. And when you recognize what the Lord Jesus has done for you, and truly we have not even begun to recognize what he has done for us, we recognize that he is the difference between heaven and hell. That he is, different, he is the difference between a world that is ruled by evil and a world that is ruled by God. When you realize that he has fought your battles, that he has made you victorious and he has made you more than a conqueror, you can't help but praise the Lamb who is worthy of our praise.